This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. Hi there, I'm Laura Cave, Head of Marketing here at Brella, and today I'm joined by a special co-host, our Chief Insurance Officer, Amanda Turcott, for Better Benefits, episode number 14. Today, we're going to be talking to Carolyn McMahon, an expert in using human-centered design to create new solutions that drive financial inclusion and social impact. Amanda, it's so great to have you as my co-host today. Say hello to everybody and tell us how you got to know Carolyn. Hey, it's great to be here today. I know Carolyn probably the most unique introduction of anybody in my professional life. We met on a rainy day in a taxi dispatch in Long Island, New York. Oh, uh, so I didn't know that. <laughs> we were working at the time on a project, an inclusive insurance project focused on life insurance for lower income folks. And Carolyn was conducting the in-depth interviews. We met with several folks, several taxi drivers, the folks that work at the dispatch, and learned so much more about the way they interact with their finances and with the risks and expenses they have in their life than we ever could have just by conducting a survey. So that was that was my first introduction to Carolyn and human-centered design. So, so thrilled to have her on the show today. That's awesome. I'm really excited to hear from her as well, because I'm interested not only in hearing about these new solutions that are more financially inclusive, which of course is super interesting, but also I want to get more familiar with human-centered design as a tool. Certainly we've seen how you know you use that approach, Amanda, in our creating our supplemental plan, which is sort of radically different than any other supplemental plan that's out there. And I'm wondering if it can be a resource for brokers and advisors who might be listening as they think about designing their health benefits strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Carolyn's going to agree with me on that too. So let's go ahead and introduce her. Carolyn McMahon is an independent financial inclusion consultant and founder of Fem Finance. She specializes in complex program management, strategic communications, product development, and human-centered research. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Great to have you, too. Hey, Carolyn. Good to see you. <laughs> Great to see you. So, Carolyn, tell us about your professional journey. What made you become passionate about human-centered design and financial inclusion? Well, it's not a linear path. My first professional, I guess, passion, you'd say, was conflict resolution. I'm actually a trained mediator and negotiator. And what you learn pretty quickly in the world of conflict resolution is that you spend an awful lot of time mucking around in people's personal finances and watching how people's personal economics, their constraints, the kinds of systems and structures they have access to can constrain what they're able to do in their lives and the ways that permeates and often results in conflict. So I made a professional pivot to focus not on the conflict part of that story, but on one of those root causes, which was to look at people's household economics, their 
financial well-being and health. And that's what led me to the field of financial inclusion. Increasingly, we're calling it financial health, which is a nice broadening of that idea. Financial inclusion really asks how can we design systems that are more accessible to all kinds of people? How can we change systems that historically were not created to be terribly inclusive of everybody at every income level and increase people's access to safe products, affordable products that really meet their needs? You could guess that sort of human centricity of financial inclusion meant that when I set out and started my practice with Femme Finance, it was a no-brainer that we'd be using human-centered design principles and practices to inform our work, both our research and our strategy work. That's so fascinating. So for those who are listening who uh, maybe aren't familiar, can you walk us through just the basics of what is human-centered design and what happens when you apply it to health benefits? Absolutely. So human-centered design as a principle says it right there in the name. It's really about centering the human, human needs, human behaviors, human perceptions and attitudes at the center of any inquiry that we're conducting. That can be around designing a product. It can be around designing a policy a communication strategy, but it's on principle taking human needs first and addressing those real needs. I'm the first to say there's nothing novel about the principle of human-centered design, right? We didn't design the wheel <laughs> because we needed something to do. Um, we were meeting a human need and that simplicity, the elegance of just solving a real problem for people, I think is the heart of human-centered design and as the touchstone for any of us working and trying to apply those principles to all kinds of problems. More practically, human-centered design is a methodology. It's, it's a research methodology. When we think about what does it look like in practice, we're thinking about qualitative data. We're thinking about small sample sizes and deep insights gained from often kind of longer engagements with research participants. We often call them participants as opposed to subjects, um, right? There's this principle that you're co-designing or co-creating with people in a human-centered design process. So there are many methods, many tactics that come in, sort of tools in the, in the toolkit of processes we can use when we conduct these human-centered design inquiries. I'll mention that classically, another principle of human-centered design is that you don't start with product. You're really starting from a place of curiosity about a need, about a problem, so that you're not coming in to say, we're going to do, we're starting with a focus group, testing a product concept. Rather, you'd say, what's our hypothesis? What are our hunches around a problem someone's having? Let's say we think people can't afford health insurance. Let's spend some time understanding why that is and what it looks like. How does it manifest? How does not being able to afford insurance manifest for people's daily lives? Could we watch them 
in their household when they're paying their bills? Could we ask them about what it looks like when they open their computer to sign on to the portal when they're managing their benefits? Could we use our powers of observation to understand the problem before we went in with our own ideas about how to solve that problem? Okay, fascinating. So if you were to apply that process to health benefits, how does that work? And it, and is that how this kind of thing is usually done? Amanda, maybe you can give us some some color there. Yeah, that's that's not usually what happens in an insurance company. <laughs> yeah, usually when we're revising our products or coming up with the new product of the year, which is generally a variation on an old product, we come with that lens of, I have a product, say, critical illness or hospital indemnity, and it's not meeting some metric. The profitability is too low. The enrollment rates are too low. And we want to boost this particular metric. And we sit around a conference room table and think about what strategies could we employ to boost this metric? What could happen? Like Carolyn said, we make hypotheses. And then we decide on which hypothesis around the conference room table we think makes the most sense and is, is going to, to work the best. And then we implement it into a product, <laughs> into the product and release it as the 2021 version of our hospital indemnity product. Which, you know, if you think about the scientific method that we all studied, you know, in third grade with the, the trifold science project boards, we have a problem. We had a hypothesis. And we reached our conclusion and wait a minute, there was a step that was missing in that, right? Like there was no experiment and there wasn't like an analysis of those results before we came to a conclusion. And I think that for me, watching Carolyn work, you know, in our first project and later on subsequent projects, that's one thing that's really impressed me is that I think it's so important for insurance leaders, you know, or folks interacting or building insurance benefits to really sort of take that scientific method approach. How can we experiment with these ideas that we're putting into our projects and really making them the best that they can be for the consumers that use them? And what stands out to me is that it seems like there's much more of a centering of the problem before you're before you're focused on the solution. And certainly it's common sense that if you don't understand the problem, you probably haven't designed the right solution for it. Is that? Laura, it's common sense. And it's so easy for us to get in that trap because when our job is to make the numbers work and come up with the new product, it happens, you know, I mean, I'm so happy today to be with my favorite actuary on the planet, Amanda. But, you know, actuaries are trained to solve problems in different ways. And it's an Excel game and it's a numbers game and it's complex and it's legitimate problem solving so that we can offer better insurance products and that it works, that, that the back end works, that the company is stable. But I think what human-centered design can do is say, great, let's, let's take what's the numbers that have been chugged on the back end. And let's see if there's any way we can turn that into something that actually meets the need, that meets that problem we're trying to solve. Right, right. Well, and if you don't have the research methodology or the skill sets around and talent around running a process like that, I mean, you may just not even be unearthing some of these insights that you would if you employed a, a human-centered design research process, it sounds like. Well, I'm wondering, so 
talk to us a little bit about, and I'm going to steal Amanda's question here, but talk to us a little bit about how, like, why does human-centered design as an approach lead you to naturally create products and programs that are more financially inclusive? Thanks for that question, Laura. I think it's really important. The principle of human-centered design is aligned with inclusion because we're thinking about centering needs of all people and listening, really listening to the people we're asking questions to and asking who we're not hearing from. That said, there's nothing automatic that would make a human-centered design product naturally inclusive or equitable. It's not automatic. It has to be intentional. So I would say the same biases that can pervert or contaminate a big research study, big quantitative methods, thinking about the kinds of things that bias how we write survey questions, who we invite into the sample, what kinds of asks are we making when we ask people for their time to conduct surveys. All of those kinds of biases and factors could also pervert a human-centered design process. So, however, with an acknowledgement of those factors, we can be very intentional about who we bring in to the sample when we're thinking about the human-centered design research process. Who's in that sample? How do we structure these conversations in ways that mitigate some of those risks? And the processes of human-centered design, I think, are well set up to mitigate those risks. One is because we have such small sample sizes. And sometimes it's a dozen people, right? It's not 12,000 people. It's a dozen But the premise is if we spend long enough talking to people and if we think about who is in that room, if we think about the range of types of experiences that people have and bring those varied experiences into a room, we then spend long enough with them and ask questions that are open-ended enough that we hear surprising things in the room. Then we're really set up to be including perspectives that we weren't hearing, that we weren't getting through a a checkbox form, even at scale. That's fascinating. I can offer an example, a personal example, that I think kind of illustrates this point. I was a young student coming out of graduate school, being hired, and it was onboarding day. And I was sitting with the benefits administrator in the small nonprofit, and they were walking me through their health plan. And they were so proud of this product. And I was sitting there with the papers all in front of me, and they were explaining what what the plan was. So it was a high deductible health plan. This was years ago. I'd never seen such a thing. And they were pairing it with a health savings account. So an HSA that they were funding, they, the employer, were funding an HSA and they were explaining, you know, you can use this for qualified expenses and you can use it to pay down, you know, this high deductible. And they, again, they, they were really selling it. You know, this was really a draw in the hiring process, like this, this product. And all I could see in this sea of paperwork in front of me was this number, $4,500 deductible. I was like screaming at me. And all I felt was anxiety. 
I couldn't hear anything about the HSA and how great this benefit was. I can it can take I can take it with me. All I could see very clearly was that although the employer was going to fund this HSA, that would be a gradual process. It would be a drip, drip, drip bi-monthly of small contributions that eventually would be enough to cover that deductible in the case that I needed it. But that all I was doing was the math of how many months I was really exposed to this risk of this huge high deductible, the likes of which I'd never seen before. So Right, pause and, and we can take get, get ourselves out of this scenario. There's a there's a misalignment. The employer is so confident in this benefit that they have offered, they've touted it in the hiring process. It's it's on paper, it's a great product. I mean, I work in financial inclusion. I love an HSA. I, you know, I think this is a great, I still have that HSA, Laura. I still fund it. <laughs> you know, the product ended up working for me. But what that employer couldn't see was that there was this tiny puzzle piece in the map, in the journey of me as an employee there, where I was left super at risk and super exposed. And not only was I anxious about that and nervous about it, but to be honest, knowing that they didn't see that and weren't addressing that fear actually made me lose a little bit of trust in them as an employer on day one of that job. That's not an ideal situation for an employer. Human-centered design would say, okay, instead of just rolling out your benefits, let's think about how we could test and get to this insight. How do we get Carolyn to tell us she's afraid? Because she doesn't have power right now to tell you in this moment that she's nervous about this? How could we design a process that helps people who don't have the power position in an employer-employee relationship and elevates those insights to the employer for a redesign? You know, you could think about doing a role play. This is a technique of human-centered design. You could think about bringing in a researcher to play the role of the benefits administrator, getting a half a dozen employees together and saying, let's role play this conduct the scenario as if it's day one onboarding, and then let's pause and hear everything you have to say about not only what the product is, but the delivery, how we address how this will feel to you. That would be a really thoughtful way, inquiry first, to elevate some of those voices that may not otherwise be heard. So I think I know what you're going to say, but employers and brokers can use human-centered design to improve their benefit strategy. How do they do that? Yes, absolutely. A couple ways. First, just globally, I would say everyone can try to cultivate this mindset of genuine curiosity. That's really easy to say, and it is really difficult to do. It's hard to ask questions, especially when you're afraid of the answers. That's a human condition. And it's hard to be curious about things that aren't immediately in front of your face. I think, again, one of the benefits of human-centered design is elevating what voices are we not hearing? What behaviors are we not seeing? What attitudes are very present but not visible from where you're sitting, perhaps, as an employer? Here's an idea, right? Let's think about the broker perspective. If you're a broker, I'm going to bet that you've got 
some clients who are on speed dial and whose names are always popping up on your phone. You've got the people who are always calling you, who are trying to negotiate rates, who are going to call you and give you an earful when something's going wrong. Maybe they'll call you when something's going right, but usually they're going to call you when something's going wrong. You're going to have a very clear sense of the problems and the barriers that those clients are facing. And you're probably working really hard to meet those needs. I would ask, who are you not hearing from? Who are the clients who every year may renew with you? They kind of bob along in the background. They don't give you any trouble. They're not calling you when there's a problem. You're going to assume, which is a dangerous thing in research, you're going to assume everything's fine with that client. And what about the clients that sort of ghost you? They don't renew. And at that time, you know, maybe you've got an outtake offboarding survey and it's one question and it's a code and you sort of say they left because of price competition check. What really happened there? What did you not hear about? It wasn't a fight, but suddenly you've lost business. Human-centered design might say, let's go out and do long-form interviews with a dozen of the people that you never hear from. Let's have six of them be no problem, reliable renewers. And let's have six of them be people who dropped off and you actually didn't know why they did. And let's go ask, how's business? Let's start with open-ended questions that we try to ask from an uninterested place, from a place of curiosity, and be ready to hear all kinds of things that don't seem immediately related to maybe the sales relationship that you have with them but be open to hearing that whole experience because you're probably going to learn things you're never going to learn from just that one client calls you all the time with their perspective. That's really, that's really interesting. I'm wondering, you know, so if there's a a broker out there or an employer who's listening and they're like, yeah, I want to do this. Um, I'm wondering, are there any resources that you would recommend them too, if they want to use human-centered design to reassess their benefits? Absolutely. Let me give you my favorite resource. And then also, I do want to bring up sort of a caution about how, how to do research and the ways you can do it and maybe can't. So practical resources. I send everybody to IDEO.org's design kit. IDEO.org is a firm. IDEO is a a huge human-centered design firm. They've done a lot of work to mainstream principles and and practices of human-centered design. And they've got a beautiful kit online. They've made a lot of their resources open source. And you can go on there and have a look at ideas for methodologies. You know, okay, Carolyn mentioned a journey map. What's a journey map? How do I do it? You can go online and see examples and pictures. It's a great set of resources. And it also gives you a flavor for how to apply some of the findings of what could come out of human-centered design. I do want to make this sort of caution, which is that especially when we're thinking about health insurance, health insurance is one of the most sort of intimate products on the market. I think of health insurance, I think this is at the intersection of money, health, family, in some cases, religion. These are the kind of topics people don't want to bring up at a cocktail party, let alone in an office. Let alone with their employer. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. Let alone with their boss. Yeah. I mean, this is like some of the most intimate stuff of life. And 
employers are also humans, A, just to, to call that out, but are often playing roles that are about being stewards of the law, of compliance, of the bottom line. And those hats that employers have to wear for good reason sometimes are not well suited (laughs) to encouraging open, honest, safe conversations and lines of inquiry with employees. It's just really important to acknowledge also the power dynamic, right? An employer and an employee is a power dynamic. And so even the most well-intentioned inquiry from an employer has may pose risks to the employee that that the employer can't quite see. Um, and those are real risks, you know, and they can be per- they can be perceived risks, but they can also be real. You know, if data gets exposed in a research process and and maybe gets passed to someone else at the company who's not so committed to curiosity, you know, then then someone could get in a real be really exposed as an employee and that's their livelihood at risk. So I think this is not to discourage the use of some of these tools, long-form interviews, instead of quantitative Likert scale one to five tools when you're thinking about check-ins, but is to say that there are times when it's valuable to bring in a firm to do this for you or bring in a couple of research partners to conduct this interview who may be able to practically anonymize data, you know, aggregate and disaggregate it in a way that becomes safer and mitigates the risk for all parties, right? Because just like employees might not want to share that information, employers may be saying, oh God, please don't tell me that. I don't even want to know. <laughs> exactly. You know, and and we all can identify with that spirit. And yet that's the opposite of human-centered design, which is tell me, tell me, tell me, show me, tell me everything. So Sometimes a third party can mediate that the space there and, and fill the space and be and serve both the interests of the employee and the employer in a way that mitigates those risks that are real and that I want to acknowledge. I'm really glad you brought that up. I was thinking about that as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, oh my gosh, privacy. <laughs> and you know, you you specifically mention who are we not hearing from? And there may be very real and legitimate reasons why, as an employer, you're not hearing that information. And maybe that information is just not something that can be shared with you. But that doesn't mean that you can't initiate a conversation with, say, a third party, as you recommend, to get that information in a safe way that just surfaces the insights that the employer needs to act on and that so that they can act in the employee's best interest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And on the spirit of resources, I would also say if you're launching into human-centered design, do yourself a favor and go buy the Costco-sized pack of Post-it notes, multicolors, the hallmark design aesthetic of human-centered design offices are walls that are, you know, plastered in technicolor mosaics of post-it notes. This is because a method is often to scribe observations onto post-it notes, and then you physically map them along the wall into these big affinity maps. But, you know, if you want to look like a real legit 
human-centered designer, um, you've got to get the post-it notes and the charities out. Okay, so I think we've heard two resources so far. One, IDEO.org, which we'll link in the show notes, and a jumbo pack of (laughs) (laughs) post-its. We'll trust you to find those on your own. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But do you have any other resources you'd recommend or even maybe not human-centered design, a book or a resource that's really helped you as your career has progressed? Oh my gosh, the stack is so high. Yes. Let me indulge me with two recommendations. So one is a book that it's a small book and I've kept it on my desk since I bought it. It's been on every professional desk I've had. It's a book called The Rich and the Rest of Us, A Poverty Manifesto. It's written by Dr. Cornell West, who is a genius. And it's a small book that's had a big impact on me. It paints a picture of poverty in America that is very vivid. It's like a, it's like an easy read in that it's accessible and it's a hard read in that it, it paints such a vivid picture that it becomes, I think, a touchstone. As someone who's working to serve all people, I think it's important to be grounded in stories of the structures in this country that permeate globally. It paints a picture. Again, small book, big impact. The other book that's a little more academic. It's called Portfolios of the Poor. And this is a a book written by Daryl Collins and her team. This was one of the very first financial diaries experiments works. So this is a technique of financial diary where you sort of work with many households. It was a big study and ask them to track every day, like all expenditures, money in, money out, everything you're doing to paint a picture of your financial life through this financial diarying, diarying. And the work that came out of that was profound because it, the primary insight is that, you know, people may think people who are poor don't have a lot of income and have quiet financial lives. In fact, quite the opposite. Sort of the more constraints you may have on the income side of your balance sheet, in fact, the more robust, active, and actively managed is your financial life. The tools, the techniques, the behaviors you're doing to make ends meet are highly sophisticated. And that idea has become more and more mainstream and an appreciation for that, the kinds of gymnastics that many people are performing every day, every hour is getting more appreciated. But when that book came out, I mean, that was a profound shift in the thinking for many people, including myself. So portfolios of the poor, the rich and the rest of us. Those are great suggestions. We'll definitely be linking those in the show notes, and I'm super interested to read them myself. Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and really appreciate that not only are you sharing, you know, about the work that you're doing and the work that's going on to bring better benefits to the market, but you're also equipping us with tools that, you know, employers and brokers can be using to make their benefits strategy work better. So, so thank you. This was really great. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So Amanda, we just talked about so many great things. I'm wondering what are a couple of takeaways that are going to stick with you from what Carolyn's talked about? The most key for me through this conversation, as well as working with Carolyn, is really focusing on how the practice of listening is so important to building good products and applying the best solutions, product solutions you have at hand to 
you know, whatever organization you're impacting, whether you're looking to build a benefits package for an employer client or whether you're an employer and putting together solutions for your employees, listening is is such an important tool that we have and can bring to those to those solutions. Absolutely. And I know you practice what you preach. How many interviews do you think you did when you were building the Brella product? We talked to at least 40 or 50 people. And, you know, and certainly I drew on my experience of hearing about the financial and health situation of a few dozen more (laughs) throughout my career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what I, what impressed me so much was this question of just who are we not hearing from? Whose voice is not in the room? And I know in any job, it can be so easy to be reactive to the people who are clearly telling you what they want. Well, you almost have to be. You I mean, have you feel to be. compelled to be. Yes. <laughs> and yet it's our duty to do our jobs in such a way that doesn't just bend to those demands, but takes into account the broader mandate of our roles, which is to design, you know, for an employer and and a broker advisor to design a benefit strategy that actually works for all the employees, not just the vocal ones. Well, and to Carolyn's point, it's great business too, right? That's right. If we're designing good product that can be used by everybody or very large groups of people, whether they're vocal at your door or not, that's our way you know, to, to building a sustainable business as well. That's right. And, and there's a lot of research out there and we've written about this a, a lot on our blog at Brella, you know, that talks about the impact of the stress that comes from folks either not being enrolled in the right benefits or not having access to the right benefits to sort of shield them from the financial burdens that come with our healthcare system and, and all the rest of it. And so, so I think this is really important work. And, you know, it's amazing that the solutions can be as simple as initiating conversations with people that you don't hear from. And, uh, and I really appreciated her advice about getting a neutral third party to do that on your behalf. If you feel like you're going to need to hear about sensitive information, this is all part of how we take care of our teams. And when we take care of teams, they are able to do their most productive work. And that's, that's what this is all about. So that's great. Well, awesome. I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. If anybody listening wants to get in touch with Carolyn, you can visit her website, femfinance.org. There's some information there about how to get in touch with her. And if any of this discussion about Brella resonated with you, and if you want to get involved with us, you can email us at sales at joinbrella.com and we'll get your inquiry routed to the right person on our team. Right now, we're working with brokers and their Texas-based clients on off-cycle enrollments, so definitely don't wait until your next benefits cycle to get your team the coverage that they need. Thanks so much. Visit joinbrella.com podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.